Thank you, Dan. All right, so exciting to be together again in the study of the book of Revelation. So take your Bibles and look with me at the book of Revelation. If you want to know where it is and can't find it, begin at the book of Genesis and just count 66 books all the way to the end. When you reach the end, you will have found this great, great finish to the Lord's revelation to His people. Some of you have said to me, you know, I, I have been in the church a lot of years and, and I know a lot of pastors that wouldn't tackle it. Uh, I, I'm under no illusion that the expositions that we cover are in any way going to wow you as to what the Lord yields in terms of my own study. But it is in the Word of God and, and it will be a sanctifying grace and we love that about it. <clears throat> so, so rich to think about all that God tells us even in, in some of the mysterious and symbolic language of Revelation, it's great to know that God knew what He was doing when He gave it, and He doesn't need to apologize nor in some way explain to us in triplicate why He would do such things. It is for us to explore and to mine out the riches that God intends so far as we can understand it. <clears throat> Tonight we are in verses 4 through 8, and I've entitled it, Behold, He is Coming. Follow along as I read. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. And He's made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is a great section because you know he's already told us, this, this John who has written this, John the Apostle, he's already mentioned here by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, that we are to read the things that are in the prophecy of this book, and we are to hear them with ears of faith and heed them. And so what you have now is John introducing the letter. It is a prophecy, and yet it is written like normal correspondence in ancient times. It breaks down in verses 4 to 8 very simply, just three sections here. The first I like to call greetings from the Godhead or greetings from God. The second section we'll call praises to the Godhead or praises to God. And the final section we'll call promises of the Godhead or promises of God. Let's look first of all at greetings from the Godhead. The letter begins very simply like most ancient correspondence. John to the seven churches who are in Asia. So we know here the correspondence was written to local fellowships on the earth, real local fellowships. In fact, seven of them. 
verse 11 indicates that he was to write in a book what he saw and send it to the seven churches. When we get to the study of chapters 2 and 3, we will see what the messenger from God on behalf of Jesus Christ has to say to the seven churches. But there are seven of them. They are real churches. And these letters or this entire letter with particular messages to each of the churches is addressed here. And John says it is to the seven churches who are in Asia. You know them because you've read Revelation 2 and 3. Interesting places, interesting ministries at the time in which this was written. Ephesus, the hardworking, steadfast church that exposes error and wouldn't tolerate evil. Smyrna, an impoverished congregation, slandered by many. And in the church, many were thrown into prison and sentenced to death. And then there was Pergamum. This is the church who shined a blinding light of the gospel right into the darkest halls of Satan's dominion. Thyatira was the church known for excelling still more. They were this, and then to a greater degree they obeyed even more in their persevering faith and love. Sardis is included. Sardis I like to call the church with the artificial pulse. You have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. And then there was Philadelphia. This is, this is the unassuming church, a faithful church before which God's enemies are forced to bow, a church where her enemies are forced to acknowledge God's special love and care for His people. And then, of course, the lukewarm church, Laodicea, full of arrogant, self-sufficient materialists, but perhaps a small remnant of hopefuls that God calls to repentance. Notice verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, John says, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Notice verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the, shining, the, the sun shining in its strength. Verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the stars are the messengers of the seven churches, or angels, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So John begins his correspondence in the normal way. He's writing a message for seven particular churches, and he's to write down all that God reveals to him. The completed written revelation is then to be given to messengers or angels who will each then deliver the revelation to their particular local church to which it has been appointed. And of course, John tells us where the churches were located. They're in Asia or literally Asia Minor. Why these particular churches? Well, there were, of course, as you know, many, many other churches in the area. Important profiles on some of these churches in those early days of the gospel. Why send letters to these particular seven? And why just seven? Is there some significance to picking seven ministries along what was known as literally the great circular road that, that bound together the most populous, wealthy, and influential part of the province? So along the trail up in Asia Minor, you find this circular road that bound these cities together. I want to just look for a moment at the text and see what our observation skills yield. John, no doubt, um, knows his audience because he just uses his first name. There's no expanded identifiers or official titles. That tells us, at least 
initially that these local churches knew him well. And according to verse 9, John knew that each congregation was aware that he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. Island of Patmos, you remember in our study a couple of years ago of a particular section in chapter 1 here, it was a small island off the coast of modern Turkey. It's just at the southern end of the Aegean Sea. John was sent there a year earlier than this revelation by the emperor Domitian, and Domitian was, of course, the local authority in Asia Minor, and he wanted John out of Ephesus. He wanted him out. He wanted him silenced. And since the island was within the proconsul's jurisdiction, it was a convenient place for a religious or political prisoner where they could exile them and silence them. In fact, archaeological evidence tells us that though there were a few things that went on on the island, it was probably a place where if you wanted to silence somebody, it was a good place to do it. There was a strategic harbor on Patmos. Uh, it had a sea lane from, from Ephesus to Rome. It had a rather extensive administrative center. There were a, a few outlying villages, but, but in spite of those things and even a couple of small temples, pagan temples that were sort of the Ephesian temples to Diana and Apollos and Aphrodite. Other than those things, while we don't know what the conditions were for John, it's pretty clear here that shutting him up was what the emperor wanted to do and he must have therefore had very little freedom in this small place. And so he writes to these seven specific churches who knew him well. And being the the last remaining apostle of Christ, John had likely become their spiritual father. And so he doesn't have to give some long introduction to these reproofs that he's going to give in chapters 2 and 3. John had likely been, uh, in the latter part of his ministry, the overseeing shepherd, really, to each of these churches' respective teams of elders. He had a close relationship with these ministries. He felt no need to sort of um, grease the slide in giving these commendations and even some severe rebukes. These letters were written, and this apocalypse, this prophecy was written to these seven local fellowships. But notice who it's from in the greeting. To the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, and then some descriptors about the Lord of glory himself. So you have greetings from God himself directly in this letter. Normal greetings would have been grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul put that extensively, but here you have titles that indicate a separating out of each member of the Trinity in a unique way. So that what you see here are greetings from the eternal glories in heaven, greetings from God Himself, greetings of peace and grace directly from the Godhead, and you'll see why in a moment. The first one we note is the Father Himself, and we'll call this uh, the Father transcendent and imminent transcendent and imminent. You say, well, those sound like big words. Here's all they mean. Transcendence means that God is outside of his creation and over all of his creation in the sense that he is bigger than, larger than, outside of its space and time continuum. He's not bound by it. He's immense. He's transcendent and above it, outside of it. 
But when we say he is imminent, we say he's near, he's intimately involved. He actually, though he's transcendent, intimately involves himself in his creation. And that's what you see in this title, in the beginning of this greeting. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, I know what you're thinking. When you read that line, who is to come, at first glance, it may seem to be a reference to Jesus, who clearly, according to verse 7, is coming with the clouds. But it can't be in this first title a reference to Jesus specifically because verses 5 and 6 separate Jesus out in the greeting. Verses 5 and 6 indicate a separation between Jesus Christ and between the seven spirits who are before the throne and between this one who is called the one who is and who was and who is to come. (coughs) And though we'll get to it in a moment, since the spirits who are before the throne are also separately mentioned, it seems clear that this first title does not belong either to the spirit or to Jesus. It belongs then to the third member of the Godhead, the Father himself. Really, the first member of the Godhead. But it's an interesting way of describing him who is to come, who is and who was and who is to come. It's used again in verse 8. Notice in verse 8, as God the Father declares he is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, he's also called the Almighty, and you notice there that he is again referred to as the one who is and who was and who is to come. Look for a moment at chapter 4, verse 8. Keep your Bibles at the ready. Chapter 4, verse 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. There's the title again. In chapter 11, verse 17, you have the same thing. He who was and who is. Chapter 16, verse 5, same thing. This is the one who was and who is. What does the title intend? Well, there are three elements to it, and it it brilliantly brings together God's transcendence and His imminence. First of all, this is a letter and a greeting from Him who is. That is to say, it is from God the Father who exists. He exists. He has no beginning and no end. That's why he is called the Almighty, the Alpha, and the Omega. It's literally what he told Moses in the Old Testament when Moses said, what do I tell them when they ask me who sent me to them? He said, you tell them I am has sent you. In other words, I exist. I'm self-existent. This is the great perfection of God, which we in theology call His aseity, His self-existence, and His eternality. He exists. There's no beginning and no end. He is eternal, and He's self-existent in His eternality. He just simply exists. And He's also the one who was. What does that mean? Well, it's an interesting verb. It's in the form that indicates that The writer is saying as a title, he's always existed throughout eternity and there was never a time in the past when he did not exist. He is, he exists, beginning and end. He has no beginning, he has no end, he's eternal. And 
as far as up to this point and every moment in the past, He's always existed. It's part of His title. I would call these two verbs a description of God's transcendence then. He transcends our finite existence as created beings. He's outside of time and space. Time and space were created by Him, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He is transcendent in that He is also sovereign over all His creation. That is to say, He ordains it, He rules it, He decrees its boundaries and its lifespan, and He sustains its every molecule and every atom. So what you have here in this title, in the first two verbal ideas, is that God exists, and with respect to all of past history and time, He's always existed in the past. There's never been a time when He had a beginning. There will never be a time when He has an end. He just simply exists, and He's self-existent, and He Himself is always existent, so that when you think about the past, He's always been there as well. He's He who was who always was. But this last line of the title speaks of God's imminence, God's nearness, His intimate involvement in His creation. He is the one who is to come, or literally is coming. Now, as I said, this is not a title for Jesus, even though, listen, it does describe what Jesus is going to do. It's not a title for Jesus. It's a title for the Father who's greeting His people, but it is not the title for Jesus applied here, even though it describes what he's going to do. He will come. You say, well, then why is this phrase applies to the Father? It's applied to the Father because it is the Father whose mercy toward his fallen creatures is revealed in the person and the work and the reign of Christ. Christ comes sent by the Father, and is the full revelation of the person and the work and the return and the reign of Jesus. So think of it this way. God the Father is called He who is to come because He intimately reveals Himself to us in the sending of a Son who reveals Him to us, in the sending of a Son who is our intimate Savior, in the sending of a Son who's one who is our King and who will reign with us and over us. It is so that we might intimately know everything there is to know about the heart of Almighty God. That's why God is called He who is to come. He's to come in Christ Jesus. He's to come in His Son. John 1.18 said it this way, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. What is that? It's a phrase that means He's in the most intimate place of the heart of God. The only begotten God, that is the Son, Jesus, the Word that became flesh. He is in the most intimate place of the heart of the Father, and He will explain Him. He has explained the Father. He said in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And when Philip was saying, show us the Father and it's enough for us, John 14, 8 and 9, Jesus said, have, you, have I been so long with you, Philip? Have I been so long with you and yet you've not come to know me? He who's seen me has seen the Father. I love the way Jesus answered that. Show us the Father. Have I been with you so long and you don't even yet know me? I am the Father to you. I am the Son who explains the Father to you. If you've seen me, you know the Father. And so if the Father sent the Son to save us, and if the Father sent the Son to reign with us, then the Father is rightly called him who is to come. 
God the Father is revealed in the Son, and the Son abides in the Father. And when the Son comes, He is the full expression of the Father. He is the full revelation of the Father and the full glory of the Father coming to reign among His people. Even as the God-man, He's the one who fully explains and reveals the glory of His Father. So what you have here is a greeting from the Father in all His transcendence and all His imminence and nearness. So what does that mean for us? Well, remember, He said, to the seven churches who are in Asia, grace and peace to you from this one. Grace and peace to you from the Father. This Father who's outside of you, above you, transcendent, self-existent, and yet imminent, near, personal, intimate. So much so that His Son, the one He's sending, is coming. And when He comes, it befits the Father's title. It is the Father who is and who always was and who is to come in the revelation of His Son. And then you see here in this greeting, the Spirit. The reason Jesus is not second and the Spirit third here is because John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is going to say some things about Christ that are important just in preparation for verse 7, behold, He is coming. And so the Spirit is mentioned here first before Jesus Christ. And so the greeting comes from the Father, transcendent and imminent, and now the greeting comes from the Spirit, and we'll call Him perfect and omnipotent. Perfect and omnipotent. Perfect in the sense that he's comprehensive in his influence, he's utterly effective in his influence, and he's, he's omnipotent in that he is powerful in his influence and cannot be assailed. Notice verse 4, grace to you and peace from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now we know that within the Godhead, <clears throat> there are three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Lagos, the Word, become flesh, and the Holy Spirit, who according to John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 26, the Spirit proceeds from the Father. But here John refers to the seven spirits who are before the, before the throne. And we read that and we think, what in the world is he talking about, the seven spirits? Well, let's, tr let's sort of gather some clues. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, the message to the church at Sardis, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. So, Jesus is the one who has and sends out the seven spirits of God. Whatever the seven spirits of God are, whatever they have to be interpreted as, Jesus has them, Jesus holds them, they proceed from the ministry of Jesus. They, they work on behalf of Jesus, or in this case, as I'm convinced, the Holy Spirit ministers on behalf of Christ. But let's gather some more clues. Chapter 4, verse 5. This is the scene in heaven, the throne, and God being worshipped. And verse 5 says, Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Oh, that's interesting. 
So now you have in the scene of heaven before the throne the seven spirits of God as lamps burning. Chapter 5, verse 6 gives us another clue. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. Who is that? This is none other than Jesus Christ, the one who was slain, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. John saw between the throne and the four living creatures, which were mentioned earlier, the elders and a lamb standing as if slain. And look at this, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God set out into all the earth. Wow, okay. So, Jesus Christ holds the seven spirits of God. The eyes, the seven eyes of the Lamb, Christ Himself, are the seven spirits of God, and they are sent out into all the earth. Now, what you have in the imagery so far is a penetrating power, a perfect wisdom of the Spirit. The Spirit, or these seven spirits, are sent out into all the earth. Christ holds them. They're a part of Him. They're actually His eyesight, His wisdom, His insight. So in his resurrected state, the resurrected Christ is described as having seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God before the throne, and they are sent out into all the earth. It's interesting that the Spirit is said to be here the eyes of Christ. Do you know in the New Testament and even uh, Old Testament ideas, there was always that sense that the Spirit was the Spirit of God, and He is the Holy Spirit, and He's the Spirit of truth, and the Spirit of truth is the Spirit of Christ, and they're interchangeable. In fact, Romans 8 verse 9, the Spirit of God is also called the Spirit of Christ. He's a distinct person, but He has the exact same essence and nature, so He can be called the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of God. So what we have here now, based upon our meager observation so far is that the seven spirits of God are really the description of the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit of Christ is held by Christ and sent out over all the globe on the redemptive mission to penetrate the world with the power of the Spirit of Christ and the perfect wisdom of God. say, well, I'm not sure I'm convinced of this conclusion. Well, turn to the prophet Zechariah for a moment. You'll need to study the Old Testament text in Zechariah chapter 4 from which John's inspired description is drawn. And I love this text because there are two places in the book of Revelation where the vividness from Zechariah's prophecy are clearly pulled by John into this final revelation. But from Zechariah 4, we glean some more things. Notice Zechariah 4, beginning in verse 1. The angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who's awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on the top of it. And it's seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. As two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. When you get to Revelation chapter 11, you start to see the significance of these two olive branches. 
Verse 4, then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? And so the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Ah, so now the spirit comes into play in this great vision. Verse 7, what are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. And also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it, and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But the seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. What you see in the prophet Zechariah is a reference to the potency, the penetrating wisdom, the power of the Spirit of Almighty God to tear one kingdom down, to rebuild the foundations of another, and to finish it so that the Lord of hosts is known to be the one who has sent the rulers to do His bidding. And the seven, that is to say, the seven lamps and seven spouts, they will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They'll be glad when they see God completing the task, tearing down one kingdom and restoring another. And these are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. In other words, the Spirit of God is the plumb line that makes it happen. The Spirit of God is the one that penetrates. The Spirit of God is the one who does these things. And so now you begin to see that John pulls this into the book of Revelation, and he begins to talk about this great penetrating work, complete wisdom work, the finished work, the fullness work. What you see here about the Spirit of God is that He is omnipotent and powerful, and His work is perfect and complete. It gets finished. It is complete in its fullness. And when the Lord who holds the seven spirits, which are the Spirit Himself, when He sends the spirits out across the globe, they accomplish the work that He wants to accomplish. Now, I know you're asking the question, why does He refer to the Holy Spirit as seven spirits of God rather than just one? Well, it is true. You can't really ignore in the book of Revelation the way the number seven is used throughout the book. In fact, this will be a little fun exploration for a few moments, but check this out. Notice chapter 1, verse 12. The, the number seven starts flying all over the place. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Notice verse 16, seven stars Chapter 4, verse 5, that we had just been reading. Seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Chapter 5, verse 1, the seven seals of the title deed to the earth. Chapter 5, verse 6, I saw between the throne and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Chapter 8, verse 2, 
in these judgments that are coming upon the earth, the Lamb breaks the seventh seal, and John sees seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets are given to those seven angels. By the time you get to chapter 10, verse 3, he cried out with a loud voice, and what as when a lion roars and when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. And John wasn't allowed to write down what the seven peals of thunder had said. Chapter 10, verse 7, in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants the prophets. That's very interesting. In the days of the voice of the seventh angel with the seventh trumpet, when he's about to sound, this is what this, the text says. The mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants and the prophets. What does that mean? The revelation is finished. The judgments are coming. It is a complete revelation. Everybody is warned. They're duly warned. It's a complete process. It's utterly finished. Chapter 11, verse 13 there is this massive pagan center called Sodom and, and Egypt. And they've murdered God's two powerful witnesses. And they've partied for three and a half days over their dead bodies. And then after three and a half days, these witnesses are both resurrected and they begin to ascend into heaven. And as they ascend into heaven, again, the number seven appears. A massive earthquake occurs killing 7,000 people. And it's very interesting in that text that the 7,000 people that were killed are a tenth of the population, and the text says the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Again, very interesting. Associated with the number seven is this idea of something being completely and fully dealt with. 7,000 dead, and then every last woman child and man remaining were shattered into humility, terror, and gratitude to God. So that the entire place called Sodom and Egypt, you're either dead or you're thanking God in utter humility and terror. It's a complete package when God works. Chapter 12, verse 3 and 4, the scene with the great red dragon having seven heads with seven crowns. It's almost as though when you get into these middle chapters where you see the beast and you see the evil that's beginning to reign on the earth under the Antichrist, there is almost a sense in which there's a fullness of evil going on. Chapter 13, verse 1, a beast with seven heads, each with a blasphemous name. Again, it's, it's as though the fullness of evil is represented by a beast with seven heads, and all seven heads have a blasphemous name. Complete blasphemy, full blasphemy. Again, the number seven seems to be associated with that which is complete, that which is full, that which happens in its fullness, that which is finished. You see the same thing in chapter 15, verse 1. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are, look at this, the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Again, the idea of being finished, the idea of being complete, the idea of fullness, the wrath of God revealed and expressed in all of these judgments leading up to seven angels with seven last plagues, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Verse 7 of chapter 15, the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. 
And then there, as I said, there's this sense in which there's a fullness of the evil that begins to be expressed under Antichrist's reign. By the time you get to chapter 17, verses 9 and 10, these seven blasphemous heads on this beast, they are seven mountains on which the woman, the great harlot, sits, and they are seven kings. It's as though the, the culture in all of its complete fullness has been completely eaten up with idolatry. Now, there are other numbers repeated in the book of Revelation. Twelve thrones, ten kings, twenty-four elders, one thousand years. But the number seven... In, in the places it's repeated is clearly all over the place and it seems to be associated most often with the idea of the fullness of something or the completeness of something. And so when you're reading the book of Revelation and you open up that first chapter and you see the seven spirits of God who have been said to be sent out into all the earth, it, it seem, it's a clear reference to the similar words of Zechariah 4.10, the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth, it speaks of penetrative power. It speaks of clear, perfect wisdom. It speaks of righteous and sovereign control and reign. It speaks of a global dominion that is unstoppable in its impact and full and complete. Look, if, if when the seventh trumpet sounds, the mystery of God is finished with regard to the revelation and preaching... If the wrath of God is finished, 15.1 says, when the seven angels pour out their seven bowls in these seven plagues and the wrath of God has come to its fullness. If the seven-headed beast even has a complete sense in which there is fullness of evil expressed in those blasphemous names, then you can't ignore the idea that the seven spirits of God is really just a way of expressing that the Spirit of God Himself is penetrating, He's comprehensive, He's full in His efficacy, He's wise, He's perfect in His wisdom, He is omnipotent in His power. If God says the Spirit of God is going to go to and fro on the earth and accomplish all these things, then that is a guarantee to God's people of your grace and your peace. Hence the title. By the way, God did create the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh because his work was what? It's complete. It's not an unusual concept stretching all the way back to the beginning. And by the time Israel was an established people of God, they already knew that the number seven often represented the idea of fullness or completeness. You see that in books like Leviticus and, verse, and chapter 26 where God threatens Israel with punishment that's going to be sevenfold, but it's not seven separate punishments. It's just a sevenfold punishment, a complete punishment, a full punishment in order to bring about your repentance. God knows how to punish. He knows exactly what to bring. It's a complete and full punishment, and that's why it's called a sevenfold chastisement. It may very well be even that the reference to the seven churches is a way of connecting the same idea of fullness to this group of churches. They may have been in Asia Minor, they may have been actual churches, but ultimately the implications of what is written to these churches becomes important for all churches throughout redemptive his history. In language studies, we call this, uh, this will be a fancy word for you, but you language students would know this, it's a synecdoche. 
A synecdoche is, is using one term which is freighted with the fullness of what that term is supposed to express. So you say seven churches, that really represents all churches. You say seven spirits, it really represents the full, complete work of the Spirit. We use that all the time. We use the word bread to refer to food or money. Or we say the, the army got their boots on the ground. We don't mean boots, we mean soldiers. It's a, it's a word that describes the fullness of an army that we, we do the same thing in language. And so perhaps it's why John writes to seven churches because they represent the fullness of the people of God assembled and needing the power and penetrating wisdom of the Spirit. They need the, the transcendence of God to, to bring grace and peace. They need the nearness and imminence and intimacy of God to minister grace and peace and the people of God need the Spirit's perfect, penetrating wisdom that is so effective, it is so comprehensive, it is so complete and powerful, it cannot be assailed. What a greeting. (laughs) Lastly, the Son. You see the greeting from God from the Father and the Spirit and now the Son, and we'll call Him faithful and majestic. Back to Revelation 1, notice what it says. Grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ. And then look at these descriptors. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. First of all, He is God's faithful witness. I call him faithful and majestic because here there's a description of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to do as God had promised. He's the one who carries out the covenant. He's the one that ratifies it. He's the one that fulfills all of it. This, by the way, is a title used of him in chapter 3, verse 14, when writing to the church at Laodicea, he is called the Amen, the faithful and true witness. In the victory chapter, chapter 19, verse 11, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. By the way, this is terminology that is likely pulled from Psalm 89, which is a psalm about the Davidic covenant, God's faithfulness to bring a a king on the throne of David who would be a forever ruler. The whole psalm is about the faithfulness of God over and over again. Two words are used in that psalm over and over again. Hesed, which is the loving kindness of God, the faithful covenant love of God, and then emunah, which is the Hebrew word for fidelity. Keeping your word. Steadfast truthfulness. If he said it, he will do it. Jesus is God's faithful witness. He's the one who sits on the throne of David, promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 8 to 16. He is the one who is the faithful ruler who sits on David's throne forever. He's the chosen servant who's exalted. He is the faithful witness. In fact, verse 37 of Psalm 89, that's the very language used. The witness in the sky faithful. 
So he's God's faithful witness, and notice he's God's firstborn. You're familiar with this terminology, but it says the firstborn of the dead, or literally the firstborn from among those who have died. In other words, they can't raise themselves. Everybody dies, sin corrupts everyone, and death, it, wor- it works in us from the inside and to the outside. We all head to death, and he is the firstborn from among those who die because of sin and corruption. He's the one who came in human flesh and bore our sins in his body, and he died by the mystery of being the God-man, and as he bore our sin, he died not by his own guilt and sin, but on our behalf as a substitute, but he then was the firstborn, the prototokos. He is the one in the sense of being the pioneer of resurrection. He's the pioneer of resurrection life. He's the pioneer who conquered death. Yes, he's the first among many who will be raised after him, including you and me. But he's the one who demonstrated the power and the preeminence of resurrection. You see this terminology in Colossians 1.18. He's the head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have preeminence in everything. There it is. So that he himself will come to be known as the one who pioneered resurrection life. He pioneered the conquering of death. Again, it's a reference to Psalm 89, verse 27. I shall make him my firstborn, God says. And that psalm is pulled into this third title, and I love this. And he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Literally, the ruler of the kings of the earth. The ruler. The archon. He is the ruler. You know, it's such a... It's such a uh, usurped role and such a cheapened role by the time you see the woman, the harlot, Babylon the Great in chapter 17, the, the great city that, that, that sort of leads the culture into wickedness globally, it says that this particular city called a woman, verse 18, is one who reigns over the kings of the earth. What a cheap statement compared to the ruler of the kings of the earth. Literally, she is one who holds a kingdom over the kings of the earth. So even in the Greek language, she's one who holds some sway over the kings of the earth. That's the extent of her reign, not this one who greets us with grace and peace. This is Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's God's forever ruler. He's God's faithful witness. He's God's firstborn who pioneered resurrection life, and He's the forever King. Revelation 17, 14, they're going to wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. (laughs) And those who are with Him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. Again, in the victory chapter of 19, verse 16, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the high king, Psalm 89, verse 27. So here is, at the beginning of this prophecy, about what is to come, about the 
the horrible miseries to come, the indescribable judgments from God, the warnings from God, and even the gospel grace that goes out during these times. Here at the beginning, it is God himself in all of his fullness, the Father, the transcendent and imminent one, the Spirit, the perfect and omnipotent one, the Son, the faithful and majestic one, they are saying to us, I want you to have the strength and hope that comes from grace and peace. The Godhead says that to his people. And so it's no wonder that you see here now the praise to God. Notice, to him, the end of verse 5, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. And this is a reflection of his love and mercy. This is praise for his love and mercy. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And notice our place and privilege. And he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Look at the imagery there. By releasing us from our sins because of his great love with which he loved us, we now have this great place. He's made us to be a kingdom. We have a king. The kingdom is coming on earth and he will reign in righteousness. And we are in that place with him. We have been made a people with a king. We've been made a kingdom. What is our privilege? We're priests. Priests to his God and Father. Priests to the Father who sent the Son. We've been made by the Son through his love and releasing us from our sin. We've been made priests. What is a priest? A priest is a a person who mediates truth to lost souls. A priest is one who mediates the character of God to people. We serve the living God. We serve his purposes. And by doing so, we become his hands and his feet and his light and instruments of grace and peace to others, to one another. Did you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know that you take the Spirit of God wherever you go and as those indwelt by the Spirit, you become a servant in the sense of a priest. You're set apart in a royal priesthood, Peter says. And in that royal priesthood, you are called upon by God to do service, anointed for service, doing service. And that service is acceptable and it is powerful and it is effective. Just today, how many words of counsel? How many moments of concern? How many prayers offered up where you rushed into the very throne room of God as a priestly representative for someone else's pain and difficulty, sin? Just today, how many Moments of praise and adoration in song were a ministry by the Spirit of God through your being a kingdom of priests to serve God. And it ministered to someone else across the aisle and behind and in front of you. Lyrics and music played by musicians and the heartfelt passion of delivering a service of worship and then laying down a sacrifice, whether it was resources or time or counsel or opening the Word of God. We are a kingdom of priests to Christ's God and Father. 
We have a place and a privilege. No wonder he bursts forth and says, To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then lastly this, I love him finishing with this promise of the Godhead. We're greeted with grace and peace from the entire Godhead. We burst forth in praise to our God. And here is the promise. Behold. That is to say, listen up. Look. Pay attention. He is coming with the clouds. Again, a reference to the Olivet Discourse where Jesus spoke of the swiftness with which this coming would happen. If you saw the beginning of the fig tree beginning to bud and then and you knew that that was the beginning of his coming, you're not going to see the fruit ripe enough to pick it because he is coming that fast. And it will be swift. And it is a promise. He is coming. And notice the details. This, by the way, is a reference to Daniel 7, verse 13. He is coming. And notice the details. All will see. Wow, all will see. Take it in, beloved. The globe will see it. You say, of course, we got the internet. I suppose, I'm not looking for a human explanation about how this is going to happen, but I suppose. But when he comes in the clouds, all will see it because they will know him for who he is. Therefore, he's going to come in all of his power, all of his glory, and this great spirit of God sent forth by him around the earth is going to make it known. <clears throat> it's going to, the spirit of God is going to break forth to convict men's hearts. You say, how do you know? Notice. It says, all will see him, or every eye, and even those <coughs> excuse me, who pierced him. Who's that referring to? It's referring to the very ones who called for his death, who were his own people. He came to his own, his own received him not. This is the Jews. So the Jews will be astonished. The Jews will be astonished. Paul refers to this in Romans chapter 11 when he says, look, the Gentile salvations that are going to be so global and so impacting and and they're going to be able to stand strong and it's just absolutely going to provoke Israel to jealousy and when the Savior comes, they are going to see Him whom they have pierced and be astonished. This is their Messiah. The one from whom came salvation to the Jew first. These are the Jews. This is Israel from whom came the promise of Messiah and out of whom would come the Messiah for the blessing of families all over the globe. Every eye will see, including those who actually pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. The whole earth is going to be in shock. The whole earth will be in shock. <clears throat> I can't resist J.C. Ryle's words here. It'll come on men suddenly, he says. It'll break on the world all at once. It will not have been talked over, prepared for, and looked forward to by everybody. 
It'll awaken men's minds like the cry of fire at midnight. It'll startle men's hearts like a trumpet blown at their bedside in their first sleep. Like Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, they will know nothing till the very waters are upon them. Like Dathan and Abiram and their company when the earth opened up underneath them, the moment of their hearing the report of the visitation will be the same moment when they see it with their eyes. Before they can recover their breath and know where they are, they shall find that the Lord is come. I suspect there's a vague notion floating in men's minds that the present order of things will not end quite so suddenly. I suspect men cling to the idea that there will be a kind of Saturday night in the world, a time when all will know the day of the Lord is near, a time when all will be able to cleanse their consciences, look at their wedding garments, shake off their earthly business, and prepare to meet God. But if anything is clear in unfulfilled prophecy, this one fact seems clear, that the Lord's coming will be sudden and take men by surprise. Think for a moment how little the world is prepared for such an event. Look at the towns and cities of the earth and think of them. Mark how most men are entirely absorbed in the things of time and utterly engrossed with the business of their callings. Banks counting houses, shops, politics, law, medicine, commerce, railways, banquets, balls, theaters. Each and all are drinking up the hearts and souls of thousands and thrusting out the things of God. Think what a fearful shock the sudden stoppage of all these things would be, the sudden stoppage which will be in the day of Christ's appearing. And if only one great house of business stops payment now, it makes a great sensation. What then shall be the crash when the whole machine of worldly affairs shall stand still at once, from money counting and earthly scheming, from racing after riches and wrangling about trifles, to be hurried away to meet the King of Kings, how tremendous the change, from dancing and dressing, from opera going and novel reading, to be summoned away by the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, how awful the transition. That's right. The whole earth will mourn over him. Zechariah's prophecy says that every family in Israel of every tribe, they're actually going to gather their families together and go back to their estates, and all the family are going to be secluded in absolute and utter, utter mourning and weeping over him whom they have pierced. God loves that. He loves that finally the blinders will be lifted and he'll write his law on their hearts as he had promised and has done with so many in the time of the Gentiles. And he will love it when they finally see with sorrowful eyes and repentance. And notice it says, so it is to be. Amen. So it is to be. It is decreed. He's coming, all will see it, Jews will be astonished, the whole earth will be in shock, it is decreed. Notice the power of the Godhead. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty Listen, before the letters to the churches, before the scenes in heaven of worship, and before the judgments begin to unfold in chapters 6 through 19, and before the triumph of Christ comes, this is the time of Jacob's trouble, and before it is written about, what you have here is a demonstration of the kindness of God in sending a message of grace and peace to his people from the entire Godhead who is to be praised and worshiped, and out of that is this promise. 
He is coming. The world will be shocked. Everything will stop. His glory will be on display. They will all finally know what? It was Him all along? And no matter how much evil tries to amass against it, as we shall see, He is the Alpha and Omega, the Almighty. Behold, He is coming. So it will be. Are you ready? Exciting, isn't it? Let's pray, Lord. We want to be faithful because you have even asked the penetrating question, when you come, will you find faith on the earth? How could such a question be asked, O oh Lord? And yet our hearts are to be challenged with that question. Will you find faith on the earth here at Grace Emmanuel? Or will you find us kicking faith to the curb and trifling over nonsense? <coughs> Lord, thank you for giving us a message of grace and peace. I can hardly fathom that it's from the entire Godhead to your people. That means you're intimately involved. You've drawn us to yourself, and so we can have courage and confidence. We can take the rebukes that we're about to hear. We can receive the commendations and know what is right and good. Most of all, we can know you're the Lord of your church, and you are Lord of lords and King of the kings of the earth. And when you come, there will be all eyes on you. Well, then can we live now, O oh God, with our whole heart and life focused and fixed on you? Can we run the race with endurance, fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, the pioneer of resurrection life, and not lose heart? Thank you for this great promise will be accomplished by your great power and we will see evil run its course and, and be done away with. We long to see you on the throne of David on earth in your earthly kingdom. And we long to reign with you as you rule in righteousness. As you never make a mistake from the throne. As you always rule with equity and love and compassion and righteousness and holiness. And as evil is punished and righteousness is upheld, finally on the earth, kingdoms will be torn down who seek to defy you. And kings, all the kings of the earth, the wise kings will bring their glory into your kingdom and serve you. And what privilege that we're priests to our God. We don't deserve to be priests to you. We're servants put to use by you. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd make us holy to serve you rightly. For your glory's sake, so let it be. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.